Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got an amazing guest as always. He is a serial entrepreneur, a leading authority in behavioral change dynamics, and is one of the most powerful, engaging, and entertaining speakers in the world. Welcome to the show, Eric Edmeads. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is a pleasure. Absolutely. Now, this is a huge claim uh, with everything going on with kind of behavioral and uh, all sorts of topics. And you're one of the leading authorities in the world. Uh, what is this based on? Uh, what's kind of the, the street cred? Because you've got tons of it. Sure. Well, you know, um, let's go to the, the, the best version of it. You know, what area of life is the most fundamentally difficult area of life to get people to change? Right. The relationship with food. Uh, you know, it, it is the hardest thing. You can get people to go to the gym to some degree. You can get people to change their work. They can quit their job. They can start something new, start a new relationship. They, you know, but, but getting people to change the relationship with food has been, I mean, it's a multi-million dollar failed industry called the diet industry. And so roughly 10 years ago, when I decided to take one of my, you know, passionate hobbies, which you might call nutritional anthropology, um, and combined it with uh, behavioral change, I decided that instead of writing a diet book or creating a diet, I would create a program designed around behavioral change that would actually help people change the relationship with food. And since creating that program, probably 100,000 people around the world in 100 countries have done it. Um, we, we have an unheard of uh, 85 to 95 percent, 85 to 90% completion rate. So that means anybody wow. who starts the program, there's a 85% of those people are finishing, which is, you know, that's unheard of. just doesn't happen with the digital no. programming and stuff. And then if you poll those people some, you know, say a year later, they'll tell you that their, their, their life is still massively different, that, they, that they've stuck with it, that, that the weight they've lost is still off, that the conditions that they've reversed are still reversed, and, and it works. And I think that's probably, you know, one of the big motivators behind, uh, you know, the Canadian government recognizing me because it's, it's truly, I mean, it's groundbreaking. Absolutely it is. Now, how much of this is going to be kind of, behavioral in an essence of kind of willpower or habits that we get into, and how much of it is actually physical and where's the relationship or interconnection between the two? So I think the first problem that has to be addressed is, is the proper understanding of willpower. Um, these days there's like, you know, the, these are the kind of things you hear about willpower. I don't have very much willpower. My willpower isn't very strong. And then the latest thing is willpower doesn't work. In fact, I, I even know uh, Ben Hardy wrote a book called uh, Ben, you know, uh, Willpower Doesn't Work. Right. And, uh, and, and I want to I suggest a different paradigm. First of all, let's understand that from an evolutionary perspective, there is no evolved willpower. Like we, we, there was no need for our ancestors to have willpower. They, right. they, they were motivated by their environment to do what needed to be done to survive. So they didn't, they didn't they, there was never a case where they walked past a bush full of ripening fruit trees and thought, Ooh, I've had too many. I should walk past that. They, like they didn't have that. Right. You know, they, they, sure. They might've had some urges to do things they shouldn't do. Like uh, maybe I shouldn't mess around with my friend's wife, but the consequences were, uh, you know, the consequences were what may or may not prevent that behavior, not really a matter of willpower. So we, right. we've never, we've never evolved this thing called willpower. So willpower 
is actually just an extension of the de development of consciousness. And so to say willpower doesn't work is to say consciousness doesn't work. Well, that's not true. To really understand willpower, what we have to get is what it is. And the best, 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 simplest, and I'm all about simple, the best and simplest way to discuss willpower is considering the difference between your heartbeat and your breath. You cannot change your heartbeat without, make, without doing something pretty significant. Like you, you'd have to move your body, change your breathing, run around, lift some weights, or if you have a very vivid imagination, you might be able to drive your thoughts in a direction that would cause your, your heartbeat to change. You, you, you know, so you'd have to use some physical intervention to get there. On the other hand, your breath is something that you can simply change with willpower. You can simply decide to breathe faster or slower or to not breathe at all. And, and now you don't have to do that because you don't have to be conscious of your breathing ever. You, your, your, your body will not forget to do that. You will breathe. But you can use your willpower to change your breathing. But how long for? Well, if you consider holding your breath, I mean, I don't know how, uh, how oxygen fit you are, but I imagine that you could probably hold your breath outwards of somewhere like, you know, since this is about athletically minded people, I'll bet you can get out there somewhere at least 90 seconds or so, maybe out to two minutes, right? But sometime after two minutes, guess what your body's going to do? It's going to override your willpower. Absolutely. And, it, and it will do that. It'll do that even if you're underwater. Yes. So even if the logic dictates don't breathe right now because I can't breathe water, it doesn't matter. The body will, will, will mutiny and it will cause you to try to breathe in, in the water, in a room full of poisonous smoke. It will override the willpower. So once we realize what willpower is, is a short-term muscle that can work for changing behavior for a very short period of time or making a course correction, and that's it. Then you realize why diets don't work. You know, the average person will go on two diets a year their, over, over their entire lifetime, and they will stay on those diets for an average of six days. That's right. about the extent of time that the average person has willpower for food. It's, it's not effective. So instead, what we do is we want to work with people to cultivate their willpower to make course corrections so that by the time we've done working with them, they can walk past a Tim Hortons and they don't it's not that they have to, uh, it's not that they have to use willpower to not go in. It's that they just simply don't want to go in or they don't even see it. Right. Absolutely. Sorry, Tim. Now, so much of this too is, I think that's a great answer. And uh, a, a lot out there is, is always about, okay, mindset, willpower and everything else, but it really is just to initiate us. And I, I love how you say change courses as well. Yeah. And yeah. then it's doing something and building those habits. And a lot of those are, are physical, actual manifestations of something. Yeah. And uh, the same goes for food addictions though, is so much of it is once again, kind of physiological changes in our body that happen. Um, and what would be your guess of how many people are actually addicted to, to food? Like it's, it's gotta be up 99% yeah. or something. It it's basically everybody to some degree, you know, right. uh, first, first, I think that addiction is, is sort of um, not very well understood by people. And, and what I mean by that is that uh, we use the word as though it has a singular meaning. But the truth is that it, at, at a minimum, it actually has uh, um, it has a double meaning. And the, the first meaning relates to the concept of physical addiction. You know, if you if you quit a physically addictive substance, then you have physical withdrawal symptoms. So if you quit heroin, you you you're sick. You know, if you quit sugar, you can get sick from that. If you quit alcohol, um, there are other substances that are emotionally addictive, 
um, that might not cause a specific, you know, uh, uh, physical withdrawal. This is a little controversial, but I would argue cigarettes are like that. We, 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 we accept that they're addictive except for one problem. And that is that when somebody quits smoking, they don't vomit, they don't get a headache, they just eat. So it, it, I would argue that that's an emotional addiction in the same way that say video games are. Now, now the trouble we have with food is that food very much, uh, generally speaking, uh, people are influenced by both of those forms of addiction, which is the, which is really tough. Cause now you're talking about a double barreled addiction. So if somebody has an emotional addiction to ice cream, they will also likely have a physical addiction to sugar and, and now you, or to dairy products. And so now when somebody wants to give that up, they want to, they want to take a, they want to, you know, potentially not have ice cream for some reason, they, they have to overcome both the psychological addiction and the physiological addiction. And that's, that's one of the reasons that food is so tough for people. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. One of the things that I, I've really, really liked about your style and, and your speaking is that so much of it is based off of observable, rational thoughts and looking at the way humans have evolved and how that goes into diet. And then, of course, all these fear responses as well and, and really into those behavioral changes. Um, but this is like complete opposite of what's kind of the media industry is about right now. So are you saying there is a market for people who are rational? Yeah, I think that's a growing, that's a growing, uh, that's a very solidly growing market as people begin to wake up to what the press is. Are you ready to take your brain health to a brand new higher level than ever before? Then please check out the Hardy Brain .ca and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs. Uh, that's a very solidly growing market as people begin to wake up to what the press is. You know, I, I listen, I, I want to get to, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the current system of media and I, I'm a big fan of free speech. In fact, I'm one of these people. I'm a little radical. I'm one of the like free speech purists. And right. what I mean by that is that, you know, I even think it's dangerous when you start talking about trying to govern things like hate speech, because it's like, well, hate, de hate defined by one party is going to be different than hate defined by the other party. And now you're talking about having your speech controlled. And, you know, equally, I'm not a big fan of any media entity receiving $1.4 billion from the Canadian government. I'm not saying that that's happening, but if it were happening, I wouldn't like it. And, uh, um, and, 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 you know, here, here's an example of why I don't like the, the media interference. We, you know, you, when you and I were growing up here, I, I think I'm a little older than you, but we're, we're not so far apart. When mm -hmm. we were growing up, you would turn on the TV and, and at about six o'clock at night, the news would come on. And for the most part, it felt like the people reading the news were there to inform us. You know, they were there to tell us what was going on in the world and they were there to inform us. And I'm not saying that they weren't being influenced by government agendas or what have you, but I would say that the type of news that we got in the 70s and 80s was a lot more pure than anything that we that we see in the media today. And so, you know, one of my like just crazy examples of this is one of the most widely circulated uh, news publications in the world published an article, um, uh, two articles a year apart from each other. One of the articles claimed that eating eggs was good for you in a preventative measure. And the other one claimed that eating eggs was bad for you. Right. And, you know, I, I was like, well, I know that eating eggs isn't bad for you. And, and there's a reason I, I don't want to get into the long conversation about that. I'm just going to say there's tons of evidence of that. So I was curious why this article would say that, because what if I'm wrong? So I start diving into the article. And as I read the article, I find that the article is really very, 
vacuous and empty of real information. So what I do is I decide to track down the actual study. Turns out the study took place in, in China and there was about 1500 people in the study. And what the study indicated was that a certain number of people uh, had elevated blood sugar when they consumed eggs, which A, doesn't really make sense, but it's what they right. said. So I'm looking at that going, all right, well, then I go deeper into the study. And then, and then it turns out that the small group of people that had this increase, now remember, the newspaper said contributes to causing diabetes. The study says eh, a small group of people had a slight elevation of blood sugar. That's already a major manipulative and disgusting jump made by the media to confuse people. And most people get their education from headlines. So that kind of sucks. So, so now I decide, well, go deeper into the article. And it turns out that this only happened to women. Now, that's really weird because, you know, while our metabolisms do have some differences, that's a wholesale night and, you know, night and day difference. Why would that be? So then I read in the disclosures, you know, and most of these studies actually have to have disclosures. And I read in the disclosures. Here's one of the disclosures. The majority of the women in the study did not enjoy consuming eggs in the form of fried, boiled or scrambled. They chose to eat their eggs in the form of baked goods, such as pancakes, waffles and muffins. Are you serious? I'm deadly serious. And from there, we go to a headline that says eggs cause diabetes. Now right. you have to ask yourself, is there a reporter in the world dumb enough to write that? No, no reporter's dumb enough to write that. No reporter worth their salt is dumb enough to do that, is stupid enough to, to make that mistake. The only reason that a reporter made that mistake is because they were paid to make that mistake. They were paid right. to make that mistake by somebody who wants to fight for the share of the plate that they're that, that sorry that that uh that eggs currently have it's somebody who wants to make money with you buying their stuff instead of you buying eggs that's it and no 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 reporter would make that mistake as a matter of ethical journalism the only reason you'd make that mistake is because you're not an ethical journalist and you were paid to do it and the editorial staff would have been paid to do it oh and by the way who's a major advertiser in that newspaper well a bunch of the low fat you know, people and all the, you know, the people who benefit from you wanting to eat low fat and, and move away right. from healthy stuff. Now, this kind of low fat thing, it, it it's being debunked all the time. But yeah. what have you seen kind of in your anthropology and nutritional anthropology with uh, different fats then? Because uh, you've been with oh. African Bushmen, uh, the Hadzda tribe, uh, all these different groups who are hunter gatherers. Uh, what is kind of their diet and how big of a role do fats play and other nutrients, I guess, as well? Let's just back up for one moment for a minute and, and talk a little bit about food science and then we can get there. And I want to say this about food science. There's a lot of food science out there. You can yeah. find studies all the time. You can look on PubMed. You can look on Nature. You can look on all these scientific journals and there's tons of study about food. But not one of them, not one of the studies that you'll ever see about food actually follows the proper scientific process. And it can't because it would be unethical. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, let's say we want to test the impact of, um, say, uh, dairy products on the population. So we have to go get our thousand people. But as you know, in a scientific uh, uh, experiment, what you have to do is have everything controlled and have only one variable. So what you would have to do is make sure that those thousand people were eating everything exactly the same. We're, we're living basically the same life. We're living, we're sleeping the same number of hours. We're doing the same amount of exercise. Everything about their life would have, having the sex, the same amount, like they would, they'd have to be doing everything the same, but right. then varying their dairy input. Now you have a proper scientific study, but you can, that's just impractical. That's never going to happen. So what that means is most of the food science that's out there is 
complete rubbish. It's really difficult to do. Certainly, never mind. I mean, even something like that over six months is difficult. Never mind a multi generational study. That just isn't possible. Absolutely. So, considering that that's not possible, let's take a look. You know, at common sense. So, if you suddenly got yourself a an exotic pet, and uh, you you know you got this exotic pet and you had to take care of it. Would you, you know, zoom your way over to Harvard, you know, medical school's website or PubMed or, or any of these places to go look for the latest scientific study on what to feed your pet, a study that was probably bought and paid for by a pet food company? No. What you would do is dial into the National Geographic channel or you dial into the Discovery channel and you would go and watch a nature special about that animal. And within about an hour and a half, you would have a pretty damn good idea of what to feed that animal. Right. Done. Done. Now, that is the basis upon which I think we should be looking at food. So I'll offer you a principle, and this is, this is one of the principles of WildFit, and it's one of my life principles, and that is that any food fad, any food science, any food theory that contradicts evolutionary biology must at least be considered suspect. That's yeah. it. Absolutely. So now we go to low fat, all right? Now we go to the, the low fat. And as you've pointed out, it, it's, it's, it's been debunked, but you know, it's been debunked really heavily, except the truth is you walk around, you're in Alberta right now, or whatever you walk around the streets of Alberta and you ask the average person, I'll tell you what, you go watch what they're putting in a grocery store in their, in their basket. They're still buying low fat stuff. They still believe that low fat is an answer. They still believe in that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a problem because you see the government and the various health agencies in North America hammered this thing so heavily you know, with, with funding from Crisco and other low fat food manufacturers hammered the population so much and linked fat to heart disease so heavily that to this day, despite it being completely debunked, people are still afraid of fat. Yes. So, so the, the, the first thing is let's, the, the, the genesis of this, this is an important thing to understand. And I, I'm sure you, you know, you, you, you must be aware of this certainly if you've been following me, cause I talk about it a lot. I'll keep it short. And the short version is, is that in the 1950s, they discovered that sugar was, was likely, uh, well, definitely sugar increased sugar consumption correlated with heart, the development of heart disease and likely was showing up as a cause. And so the sugar industry at that point hired two Harvard researchers. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy fact. They hired right. two Harvard researchers and they had them uh, do a study on to prove that fat was causing heart disease. And Andrew Haas, I think was his name, like the director of the Beet Growers Association, one of the big sugar lobbies, spoke in 1955 or six at a conference. And he even said in the conference, uh, the great news is that current science is proving this and this about fat being the problem. And as we, if we maintain our percentage of the American plate and we claim a percentage of the fat calories that are being lost, we will see a boost in profits like you would never. Now, he gave the speech. He never mentioned to the people in the audience that he bought the study, right. that he paid for it, right? Yeah. So the low-fat movement, and then it gets propagated further because now you've got, you know, low-fat guru Ansel Keys goes out into the world to propagate the low-fat movement. And I, I could rip his, you know, science apart in a million different ways, but I'll just give one great example. And that is that he goes off, I think it was Crete, but he goes off to one of the Greek islands where it's considered a blue zone. Many people live to become centenarian. They're living over hundred years old. It's amazing. He goes there and he takes food samples. He takes food samples because these people are living so long. We don't know what they're eating. And he takes the food samples and he sends it off to the lab and they break it down into the different macros. And here we go. And what he finds crucially is that they, they, they there, there were no saturated fats. There were no animal products. And, 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 and here we have it. The proof that saturated fat is the problem. Only it's if you wrong. look at the disclosures, 
He took those food samples during Lent, the only two weeks of the year that those people give those things up. And as a matter of culture on that island, if at any other point in time of the year you start looking pale and sallow, they refer to you as being Lentish because they know that during Lent, people get pale and sallow, their eyes sink into their heads and they become a little yellow and jaundiced because guess what? They're missing a major and important macro. Right. So that was a long way of getting to the question you actually asked. What have I experienced? with the Hadza, what I would say is this, I am not a proponent of the high fat answer. I don't believe that we're high fat. I believe that high fat is better than low fat, but high fat is not the answer. And I, I measure that on the basis that with the exception of the hippo, the vast majority of the naturally occurring animals in nature, land dwelling animals, which was the majority of our, our you know, meat consumption are not high fat animals, like say a cow. They are much lower in fat than what we consider to be now a piece of ribeye. Like our ancestors didn't have, sure, they went for the liver, there was fat in that. I'm not saying they didn't have access to fat, but the idea that they would be eating animals that were 40 and 45% fat, not, not the case. So I'm not a high fat proponent. I'm a natural level of fat proponent, which means I don't go out and, and you know, seek to add butter to my coffee. I don't drink coffee as, you know, for what it's worth, but, but I, but what I do is I'm, I'm willing to eat a nice big ribeye, but I also buy bison, which is super low in fat and balance that out. The Hadza, I've been hunting with them now for over 15 years. I've been visiting them and, and, and it's been one of the great honors of my life without question. And I can tell you that, um, they are not, um, they're not plant focused. They certainly eat plants when they're seasonally available and when the hunting's not good, but their primary focus is about, is about hunting. And when they, when they get meat, they go immediately for the organ meats immediately. Uh, every now and again, somebody attributes that to their knowledge of nutrition. Oh, see, they know how valuable the organ meats are. So they go, no, <laughs> they, nobody, they don't know that. What they know is that organ meats like putrefy quickly. So you better eat them now. You know, the meat can dry, but the organ meats, it's much harder to deal with. So, so they eat the organ meats right away. And then they, and then, and then they, you know, they eat the other meat later, they might dry some and so on, but that meat is not high fat. We, on one of my trips, we killed a bush pig, which is like 160 pound, 180 pound pig. It's a big pig. It's much bigger than say a warthog, like Pumba from the Lion King. And it was some of the yummiest meat I've had in my life, but I'm telling you right now, it was not marbled with fat. It was a rational level of naturally occurring fat. And so in WildFit, we talk a lot about, uh, um, you know, getting people to be, uh, to wake up out of the low fat movement and, and recognize the damage. And I'd say we're talking about like millions of deaths of damage that the low fat industry yeah. caused, but we also don't advocate for them to do, become a high fat consumer. We, we suggest that they try to go after more of a rational fat lifestyle. Perfect. Now with these tribes though, they're also landlocked, correct? Um, landlocked as in not on the ocean? Correct. Yes. Well, only because we've taken up all the ocean land. I mean, yeah. it, they, they would certainly happily live on the edge of the ocean. I would, I would put to you, you know, there are these caves on the Southern coast of South Africa um, that I have visited extensively. And, and there, there are caves, like the, one of the caves that I went into, um, funny enough, they'd been excavated by my great grandfather. And I had no idea of that when I was exploring them, but, um, one of the caves, uh, they, they've, um, dug down into the cave floor because when, when, when humans live in caves, they, they create something called cave, cave litter. And so the yeah. cave floor is constantly rising like this. And so they dug down into the cave floor and put glass walls up so you could see what's going on. People have been living in that one set of caves on, on, the, on the peninsula of Rawberg for 2 
hundred thousand years. Like just, just consider that for a minute. You're in Calgary, right? Oh no, you're in Red Deer. Uh, an old house in Red Deer is what? 80 years old? Oh yeah. That's, an old, that's <laughs> old. Very old. Now, now where I come from in Halifax, an old house could be 150. Exactly. It could be 150. Of course, then I lived in England and, and, and an old house in England could be three or 400 years old. It could yeah. even be a church or something it could even be out to a thousand years old. Then I went to Croatia and I found myself in a hotel and the bloody building had been around for over 2000 years. Then of course you go to Egypt and there's the, 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 the pyramids and those are say three to 5,000 years old. And that seems like we even call that ancient Egypt, right? Ancient Egypt. Only yeah. put that against the 200,000 years that people lived in those caves. Nothing ancient about Egypt at all. Ancient is 200,000 years. And those people lived on the coastlines. And you know what they ate extensively? Shellfish. Exactly. And this, yeah, this is directly, yeah, this goes right into my next question. And that is, uh, you're big into the evolution side of things. So uh, have you heard of the aquatic ape theory and how would this yeah. apply to diet today? And shellfish is one of these, but I'll let you, yeah. let you speak on it. I, I you know, I, maybe because of my lack of like formal academic training, I, I tend to make, uh, I tend to make leaps that, that, you know, that maybe sometimes more science minded people are going, well, that's a pretty big jump, Eric. But I'm, I, I, I'm just going to say this, that, um, you know, to this day, let's take a look that we now know, a matter of fact, I just saw this in mainstream media the other day, not that that means it's true, but I, I saw a study that talked about um, the stress reducing impact of being by the water side. So right. when you are at the water's edge, your stress goes down. Well, why do you think that is? Well, because one thing is, is that 50% um, of the threats are gone. Nothing can attack you from that side, right? So the other thing is, is that you're now in a land of complete abundance because the ocean is constantly providing food. It's providing fish, it's providing shellfish. And even before they developed like full-on fishing technologies, spearfishing in the tidal pools, like even at, when I was a child traveling to South Africa, I could have sustained myself on the fish that I caught in the tidal pools that I could have easily caught with my hands or a stick. And that's, that's now, Never mind how rich those pools would have been when those people lived there. Right. So, so, you know, now, and, and shellfish, you can see it in the, in the cave litter all the way down for 200,000 years, except for a few moments when the uh, polar, when the big glaciations happen and the water levels pull out, then they don't eat shellfish because it's not there. But as soon as the water's back, they're eating shellfish again. And the fats that are in shellfish are very similar in structure to the fats in our brain. So I want to suggest that, um, you know, evolution is, uh, you know, through natural selection is a marriage between uh, um, it's a marriage between adaptations that help us to survive or breed better in the environment, but also to utilize what's available in our environment. So for example, the adaptation to develop a much bigger brain wouldn't really work very well if you didn't have great materials for building that brain. But if right. you're ingesting a lot of really solid, good proteins and very nicely structured fats, maybe that supports that process. And it, you know, and I think that to this day, it's one of the reasons that seafront property is so bloody valuable because at an instinct level, we, we are coastal. We know it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we don't live in Alberta anymore. Exactly. Oh yeah. And to get into sun and everything else. Uh, yeah. But yeah, th this, this topic like uh, resonates with me so much because like when I was learning the, the biology and, and things, of course, in functional medicine, the big one is always get your DHA and all yeah. these these healthy brain fats. And then when I went into the neurology, it was, there's all these reflexes in our, in our body 
that has to do with water. And I'm just like, well, this makes perfect sense. And then when I heard one of your talks and going into seasonal eating as well, things just started to make sense. Yeah. There, there's a reason why mangoes don't grow in Canada. <laughs> and <laughs> why don't we just pass that over about the seasonal eating aspect and how you incorporate it into your wild fit then as well? You know, it's funny, when I first started WildFit, I was like really reluctant to talk about this because I knew that it was a game changer and I knew that, you know, people would just model it. And the truth is, is that if you really, really want to understand metabolic health, what you have to have is an understanding of the human, um, uh, you know, evolved response to seasonal fluctuation. And I can't, right. and, and, and so for the first few years, I wouldn't even talk about it. I would only talk about it with clients inside WildFit because I was afraid that it would get out. And then, you know, Wildfit exploded and, and it was like, and now people, my own clients were out there talking about it. So now I would actually answer the question. And I'm still shocked to this day that the closest I've ever seen to somebody kind of stealing or borrowing or modeling this concept is to say, you should eat seasonally and try to eat based on your local foods, which completely misses the point. Right. So, you know, for the, for the, for the, you know, I guess the, to underscore the point, um, here's, here, here's a, a principle to consider. And that is that humans first of all, had to evolve to survive the various seasonal fluctuations that took place in nature. And, and that was tough because, you know, we're talking mostly about sub-Saharan, um, you know, sub-Saharan existence here. And uh, winter in, in sub-Sahara is really difficult. And it's not, it's not this minus 20 stuff that you're dealing with in winter. It's, 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 it's drought. Right. It's a long, hot drought time. The plants aren't growing. The animals aren't breeding. The, the, there's, the hunting is bad, um, it, you know, it, the, comp the competition is fierce, calorie can take us down, it's a tough season. And so if you, if you weren't prepped for that season, you wouldn't make it, and many people didn't. And as a result of that, you know, certain traits were selected for. One of the traits that was selected for, it, it appears, is the, the ability to store energy and water. The ability to store energy right. and water. And, and, you know, we're not the only species that figured out ways of doing that. You know, the camel is very good at that. Uh, the bears in North America, they, they do it. They fatten up and they store a lot of calories and, and, and water in their fat. And we do the exact same thing, you know. And so how do we do that? Well, we do that because in the season prior, we, we, we had access to a lot of carbohydrate foods. Now, it's not that we were like, oh, look, carbohydrate foods, that's good for preparing for winter. No, instead, in an incremental generation by generation by generation process, as we process those carbohydrate foods, our, our bodies took a look and said, this sugar stuff's not so good. Like, that's why our bodies burn sugar so quickly. Like, I don't want this in here. So the minute you eat sugar, it's got to burn it. But, right. but then, hold on a minute now. What if we could store some of it? And so, you know, the, 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 you know then we evolve the ability to convert it to glycogen and store it in our liver and muscles. But then what if we turn it into fat? And so we became quite good at that. And so if you think about it, if you have two brothers and one of them's not very good at converting sugar to fat and the other one is, who survives the drought? The one who's good at retaining fat. Done. If you have two brothers and one doesn't have a very strong craving for sweet things and the other one does, who survives the winter? The one with the strong craving does because the strong craving drives them to look for more fruit and eat more fruit and, and so on. Well, if you take that and fast forward to today, it seems pretty damn obvious what's happened to us. We are, we are now living with, the, with what, what I call the evolution gap. We are, we are in this gap that's widening quickly between our evolved genetics and our capacity for, uh, for cultural innovation. And so, you know, as, as we develop things like agriculture and steady food supply and all these sort of things, we changed our eating patterns pretty dramatically. And now we don't have seasonal fluctuation. 
if you take a look at something like type 2 diabetes, I would argue, I have argued, and, and I have a book coming out on this shortly, um, that, that diabetes shouldn't be regarded as a, as a chronic disease that must be managed for life. It should be regarded as a repetitive stress disorder that is the result of an imbalance from living in one season for too long. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Completely agree. Yeah. So now that's season. Exactly. Yeah. And once again, it makes perfect sense. And that's that rational, observable uh, topics and that we talked about. Now, you haven't always been so passionate about food and health, have you? Like uh, during your early entrepreneur days and even before that, were there health problems or things that said, uh, I need to shape up and, and learn more yeah. about this? Or, always, yeah, always is it. Always is such a loaded term, you know, like you know, nobody was always anything, right? Yeah, right. Um, exactly. We evolved. <laughs> yeah. As, as I live in my life today, uh, having just turned 53, I feel like I've always been passionate about this. I do feel that way. But the truth is, is that in my teens, I was like most other teens, you know, I would drink Coca-Cola. I'd go to the fast food from time to time. I didn't, you know, pizza, whatever. Yeah, I ate good stuff too. But, uh, you know, I lived a normal North American life. And as far as I knew, that was fine. But I was sick, you know, that, you know, but, but that, but, but so what, you know, like that's apparently that's just the way life, the way life is. I had allergies. I had cystic acne. I had digestive problems. I had terrible throat and nasal infections. I had headaches, but I just, you know, I just having visited doctors and specialists over a, you know, over a multi-year period, I had just come to accept that as my experience. Like it's, mm. I didn't, I didn't think of there being a cause I was broken in some way. And they kept giving me this pill and this cream and this inhalant and that injection and eventually prescribing this surgery because those would fix the problems. But every yeah. one of those things was trying to address a symptom and not the cause. Right. And so at 21 years old, I went to, funny enough, I went to a, a Tony Robbins seminar and I, I, you know, a buddy of mine convinced me to go on the basis that it would help me make more money in my sales job. And that's all I cared about at 21. Right. And, um, and then on the, on the, on the last day of the seminar, you know, uh, Tony offered to do a, like, you know, like a little bonus section on health. And I was like, well, I've enjoyed my time. I may as well stick around with my friends here and do this bonus section on health. And I started listening to what he had to say. And, you know, he, he said some very common sense things, many things, which by the way, he has since changed his mind about and that I, I no longer agree with, but, but fundamentally really good things. And, and, um, and so I decided to do a little bit of a food experiment based on the principles he gave me. And the food experiment at that stage included a better relationship with sugar and wheat and dairy products and meat and all these different things. 30 days later, I'm, I'm down 35 pounds. Uh, all of my acne is gone. All of my allergies are gone. My digestive problem. I'm, I'm a new human being. I was so new as a human being that I went to go visit my mom, my mom in South Africa. And, 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 and I got off the plane, walked down the steps, and there she is. And I'm looking right at her. And she looks right at me and doesn't see me. Like eye contact and doesn't wow. see me. <laughs> then she looks over to my, to my side. And I've got my girlfriend with me, my girlfriend, Robin, who had bright red hair. Sorry, Robin. I know it's strawberry blonde. She listens to some of my interviews. So I have to be careful. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, you know, my, 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 my mom obviously recognized her from the bright red, bright strawberry blonde hair. And she, she, that caused her to do a double take. And then she looked at me and then she saw me. That's how much I had changed by losing all this weight. My, all the sinus infections had gone. All the puffiness was gone. My, my eyes were now properly proportioned in my head because I, you know, like it just changed everything. And at, from that moment on, I became 
deeply curious about nutrition and deeply curious about why all the people who asked me how I did it didn't do it when I told them how. Right. Now, how much did this increase your, your other performance then? Oh, so I, everything that I'm doing. And seminars and you're wanting that sales aspect. Uh, how much did this change other aspects of your life then? I, I, I am absolutely clear that if I had not made that course correction at 21 years old, that the life that I live today would be only a dream to the other version of me. I, wow. I am living here in the Dominican Republic on the beach. I'm 53 years old. Yesterday, I went kiteboarding for an hour and a half. I, I, I've climbed Kilimanjaro seven times. I've, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I've had very, I've had a great business life. Uh, I've been very successful in business because I had the energy and cognition to handle that. I've owned businesses in four countries. I'm, I'm currently coaching the Lebanese national basketball team and helping them prepare for the World Cup. These are all things. I, I bought the original Industrial Light and Magic model shop and worked in the film industry. I worked on Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean, Iron Man. I sat beside George Lucas while he was directing Red Tails on my stages. Like I have lived a life that that the, the that that version of me would never have been able to attain if I had not sorted out my health. Wow. Yeah, it always kind of goes back that a healthy man has so many wishes, but a sick man only has one. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, there's so many ways that it changed. Like, for example, here's obvious. I had more energy. That meant right. that I could work far, smarter, work faster, and so on. Number two, my brain worked. When, when you have a bad relationship with food, you don't even notice that the fog that's inside your brain. Like people don't even notice until the fog lifts. That's a funny thing about fog. Right. So, you know, increased cognition and memory and, and quick thinking. But then there's another one, and this is a little shallow, but it's attractiveness. If yeah. I look at the difference of me then compared to the difference, like, I, I, you know, I look better at 53 than I did at 21. And, and, and I mean, I'm talking holistically, my face, my body, everything. And, 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 and what I would say is that, in our world, looking healthy is the basis of attraction, which is the basis of whether somebody wants to work with you, work for you, invest with you, buy from you, interact with you. So on every level, it, it had a massive impact on my life. Perfect. Now, obviously, health was the primary thing that, that you're giving credit to. Um, how did you start to build these skills up to the point uh, where you're sharing this stage with, uh, well, Bill Clinton, uh, Jack Canfield, Richards Bronson, Tony Robbins. Uh, how did you start to build these hey, last business week, skills? Last week, I added uh, uh, James Cameron to that list and, and Jordan Peterson. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, I, I, I'd say this. I, I often have to kind of quote pinch myself because it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I'm, I had to go on stage after Bill Clinton. Like, can you imagine following Bill Clinton? I, and by the way, I followed Bill Clinton on, on, a, on a Friday and then I had to follow Tony Robbins the next day. It was in London, England. I had to follow Tony Robbins the next day. And, <laughs> and, and you know, and I'll tell you this and, and, you know, with the lack of humility that it comes with. But the reason I was following those people is because I can. And right. that blows me away. If I think about the petrified, phobic, uh, terrified of, of public speaking kid that I was at, at 21, 24, even into my early 30s, I would never have been able to do those things. Uh, so, you know, giving myself the gift of health was crucial, but giving myself the gift of comfortable and competent communication has been every bit as powerful and, mag and magical for me as well. The, the things that I've accomplished in life are also 
because I was able to communicate well, either one-on-one or on a camera or, you know, or, or to, to thousands of people in a stadium. In our WildFit program, I, I couldn't have known this when I walked into the studio and recorded that program, but I recorded a program that the vast majority of people who start finish and that no kidding, because every week I say, hey, I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week, you know, because the videos and stuff. Then what happens is on the final one, I say, and I won't see you next week. And no kidding, people write to our help desk crying and saying that they, like, how could I say that to them? <laughs> I, I, I am grateful that I overcame my fears and figured out how to do that kind of work because it's the key to the quality of life that I have and the ability that I've had to help people transform. Absolutely. Now, both of these go into that behavioral change dynamics. And I don't think we can really give people as much information as they need. So how do they find out about you and uh, your programs, whether it's WildFit, whether it's Speaker Nation, uh, your business programs, how do they find you? Sure. So, you know, generally I'm at mail, oh, sorry, I'm at, uh, I'm at eric.ee, www.eric.ee, generally my website. But for very specific things, like anybody who wants more energy, they don't want to be tired at four o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe they want to lose a little weight. They want to take a look at their, you know, diabetes situation, uh, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, if they want a new relationship with food, they should go to getwildfit.com. And we have four or 500 coaches around the world. It's a fabulous, fabulous uh, program. It, it, we're talking about no calorie counting, no exercise, you know, no, no, no measuring your food. We're talking about rational, logical step-by-step changes that will absolutely work. Um, For anybody who's interested in transitioning um, from being self-employed to being a genuine business owner, and what I mean by that is that having a business where you don't actually have to go to work, like your business operates for you, uh, then I would suggest going to businessfreedom.com where we teach a variety of business courses, marketing and business courses. Um, And then, uh, and, and in terms of public speaking, uh, speakernation.com is where we have a bunch of online free resources on public speaking. And of course we have uh, premium programs where people can come and learn directly from me and, and from, uh, you know, and, and, and join practice groups and so on. And of course I'm on Instagram at Eric Edmeets and I manage it myself. So when you get a reply, it's, it's really me. Absolutely. Amazing, amazing stuff. And then you've got a couple uh, sessions coming up in, uh, India and then, Estonia, correct, as well? Yeah, we've got a, uh, a Speaker Nation produces my uh, Speaking Academy event, which is our by far our highest rated uh, event. We do, it, uh, we do it three times a year, and we've got one coming up in, in Mumbai in June, and we've got one coming up in Tallinn, Estonia in October, I think. Okay. Yeah, amazing events. Uh, definitely, definitely, definitely look into Eric and all the amazing programs he has. And for everybody listening in, stay tuned to the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care.